Welcome to the Wildscast. This is a very special episode of the Wildscast. It is a recording of the annual Ruth B. Wilds Memorial Lecture, which honors Rabbi Wilds' mother, Ruth Wilds. The speaker at this event is Rachel Krauss. Rachel is a marketing and brand executive and managing director of a boutique marketing and brand consulting firm. Rachel is also the director of community education at Gehila Jeshurun on the Upper East Side, where she lectures, delivers sermons, and facilitates informal educational programming. Rachel and her husband, Daniel, also served as MJE's downtown directors. We hope you enjoy this special event as much as we did. Welcome everyone. Hi everyone. Okay. Okay. Welcome everyone. Uh, thank you all for joining here tonight. Uh, this is a, a big piece of foot. Means a spiritual merit, uh, specifically for our family and for our community. Uh, to have all of you here with us, if you hear from someone very, very special, uh, I want to just begin by uh, welcoming you on behalf of Jill and myself, on behalf of my father, Avimari, my father, my teacher. I just want to recognize my dad, Mr. Leon Wiles, my brother and sister-in-law, Mayor Michael and Amy. Uh, it's really an honor to welcome you which, to our campus, the 26th uh, annual lecture in memory of our mother, uh, Ruth Wilds, uh, blessed memory. Uh, many of you just got to hear a little appetizer, I said before, from Rachel in the other room. Um, and I want to welcome Rachel and Rabbi Daniel, dear friend, uh, who also honors us this evening. I want to also acknowledge the presence of my my colleagues, um, Rabbi Ezra Cohn, who worked so hard on tonight's event and who's been working so, so devoted behind the scenes to keep this place not only going, but growing during an otherwise very, very difficult time. Um, I also want to uh, welcome Rabbi Avi Heller, Eastside MGE, and uh, head of our fellowships program, Rabbi Penny Rosenthal. Where's Rabbi Penny? I think has been at these website lectures for many, many, many years. Rabbi Penny is the head of our senior fellowships program and an amazing, amazing Torah educator here at MGE. I also want to welcome uh, to the first uh, Ruth Wilde's um, Yorkside lecture staffer, Rabbi Moshe and Shana Davis. We just joined And I also want to thank, I don't know if she's in the room, but Rachel. At Rachel standing in the back, I can't tell who's who with the masks, and thank you for wearing the masks tonight, everyone. It's uh, an important thing, it's the law, and that's what we're going to be doing. Um, and also, I want to thank Aliyah, uh, who's running around somewhere, also helping. And special thanks, you get a chance, you'll see Vinny and Jerry on the way out. Just say thank you for all the hard work, but many hours to set this up. Um, before... Well, actually, one other person I just want to welcome, and that is um, someone who I actually only found out was not technically my aunt, but I've been calling her my aunt my entire life, and that is Joyce Weiss, who was one of my mother's dearest and closest friends. She's here tonight, 
And I just want to just tell you how much it means to us that you're always here for us, and that it should be Aliyah uh, Shema for Aaron, um, a blessed memory of the yard site and approaching. Um, both uh, meant a great, great deal to our mother. Um, I just want to say a brief word uh, about my mom before um, I get to introduce Rachel. And they kind of go together, actually. Um, so my mother's Hebrew name was Pesel uh, Abigail Bat Menachem. And um, also, I, and I said something in the other room, but I cannot reiterate enough how grateful I am to our dear friends, Danny and Lee Waxman, uh, who are here tonight. Also, uh, Lee's a member of our board. Danny and Lee just restarted up their amazing hosting of MGEers, and I'm sure they'll all get there soon. Praise God. Um, so we're reading about Yosef. And it's interesting because Joseph is the only biblical personality who Chazal, who our sages, call tzaddik. Tzaddik is a righteous person. And when you see some of the stories about Yosef, it's, it's, it's honestly difficult. You know, we're introduced to this young man who's kind of filled with his own sense of self. He's got these dreams of him lording over his brothers and he shares these dreams with his brothers. Then you see him tattletaling on his brothers. And then in just in last week's Parsha, you see him putting his brothers through this whole ordeal, accusing him of being spies and requiring him to bring their um, his youngest brother, Benjamin. Now there are valid explanations for all of this, but it's hard to see the tzitkas. It's hard to see the righteousness. But I think it can be found in Yosef's ability to always find God in his life, to always see God in the things that happened to him, and his ability to reveal God wherever he went. In the most unlikely of places, when Ashish Potiphar, the wife of Potiphar, is making these sexual advances on Joseph, what does he say to her? which is kind of a strange thing to say in that situation. It says, How can I do this terrible thing? Okay, that makes sense. If I do this, I'll be sitting against God. I mean, who in Egypt believed in, in, in Joseph's God? And then when he's fetched from jail, he's cleaned up and brought before Pharaoh to interpret his dream. What is the first thing he say to Pharaoh? It's not me. God. God is the one who's going to answer your dream. I'm just like an agent. I'm a shaliach. I'm, 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 I'm a servant. Like a conduit through which God is manifesting. And after Parah then tells him the two dreams again, Yosef says, What God is going to do, he's already told you, Pharaoh, in your dream. And he repeats it. A few verses later, What God is going to do, He's showing you. And then finally, last week's Pasha, where he reveals himself to his brothers. And he says, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph, is our father, is my father still alive? The brothers' reaction, they're just dumbfounded. They're embarrassed, they can't even look at it. What does Yosef say to make them feel better? He says this. He says, Shouldn't feel badly about what you did, because for food was I sent here. To Egypt, which is another way of them saying, had you not thrown me in that pit, 
I would have never been sold down to slavery, never ended up in a house of Potiphar, never thrown into jail, never fetched out of jail to stand before Pharaoh. And who would have saved Egypt and all of you, my own family? This is all part of God's plan. Everything that happens in our life is part of God's plan. And I share this idea because in a nutshell, that was our mother. She always saw God in her life. In every moment. She was one of those people, when something good happened, you'd heard, you'd hear like a real Baruch Hashem. Thank God. And it wasn't a platitude, she meant it. Because she believed that God was involved, and God was behind everything. And it wasn't an intellectual thing. She felt it. She had this almost innate emotional connection, which I was jealous of, something I continue to work to develop. And you can see whenever she prayed, and she davened every day, but I have the most vivid recollections of her davening on Yom Kippur. She was so plugged in. And we used to, in the Queens Jewish Center where we grew up in Queens, in Forest Hills, so we didn't sit so far away from her, separated by Machitza, but she used to always encourage us from the other side to hang in there as the day just, the hours passed on Yom Kippur. And like Yosef, she saw whatever situation she was put into as a shlichut, as some kind of divine mission that she was supposed to do something with. And she was a very beloved, popular person in our community. When she was raised there, her father, my grandfather, blessed memory, built the synagogue. So she was very comfortable. So she was always sort of the self-designated person to welcome others, to notice that newcomer. And she'd always call my brother over. I was always, when I was younger, a little too shy. And she would like point out someone and force one of us to go over and say, Shabbat Shalom, get plans for lunch. And inevitably, they would find a place at our Shabbos table. And she was also a very elegant woman. She was a yekka, which, which is means of German-Jewish descent. So everything was very misudar, which means everything was, had its place. There were no surprises. But somehow, for Hachnasas Orchid, for hospitality, she made an exception. And her Shabbos table was just so beautiful. And that combination of elegance and warmth was such a, a special winning recipe. And she had this, I guess we've coined this term since her passing, this expanding Shabbat table and this warm smile. And I just love bringing people home. I mean, I had no one else to bring them. I was a single guy running. My first rabbi gig, actually, was in the shul. The pity knows this. She was at the Queen's Youth Center. And a big part of being outreach rather is inviting people to your home, which is not so simple when you don't have a home or you're living in someone else's home. <laughs> so I would schlep everybody home. You know, most of the people were normal. And uh, she always appreciated that. And uh, she just always smiled and was so gracious. And so when someone recently asked, how did MGE begin? Well, when did it start? I thought about this, and I just said, you know, the truth is it started around our mother's Shabbos table. 
And it was established basically as our humble attempt to basically replicate her warmth and her hachnasat orchi and her hospitality. And I'm very proud to say, even now, in this crazy time, there's a Shabbos dinner happening. And I don't just mean a little Shabbos dinner, but there's like a big Shabbos dinner happening almost every week between our three sides. Between Rabbi Avi, Rabbi Ezra, here on the west side. I did the math. Between those dinners and all the home hospitality from our staff and all of the other families on the west side, east side, and beyond, we have hosted over 25,000 young Jewish men and women over the last 23 years for Shabbat meal. All as an extension. All as an extension of our mother's hospitality and all in her memory. And one last thing, and this is my segue. So there was this one young guy who somehow found his way to our home. I was a student. He was a student at Yeshiva University. I was in elementary school at the time. I was literally in third grade. And this guy, I don't know why, was hired to tutor me and my brother. Okay, I wasn't so good at math, so maybe I needed a tutor. What did he tutor you in? Everything. Everything else. So, um, um, literally from third grade through high school, this man came to our home um, once, sometimes twice a week. And he would always come in his shell shirt because he would make a couple of extra bucks. He was a mechanic at a local shell station. Always smelled of kerosene, which for some strange reason we like. And um, he was also pursuing his doctorate in psychology and studying for rabbinic ordination at Yeshiva University. And my brother and I realized years later that this guy couldn't really teach math. <laughs> but my parents brought him into our lives because they thought he was a really good role model. That person, uh, Rabbi Dr. Johnny Krug, is my teacher and mentor to this day. And our speaker tonight, Rachel Krause, is his daughter. And that's how we met. And the apple does not fall far from the tree. Rachel, who we have known for literally her entire life, and have the most wonderful memory of going to your bat mitzvah with my mother, Shaw. and she adored you. Rachel is, um, as some of you have heard this before, one of the most dynamic and inspiring teachers and role models. And uh, she is now the community uh, director of community education at KJ or MGE, East is based on the Avi. She got her BS from Yeshiva University Stern College, including coursework she took at the Juilliard School, and afterwards she got her MBA from NYU. And Rachel, some of you heard before, is currently Vice President of Marketing at the Westfields Corporation. Uh, she occupies a very, very important position, been there for many years, and somehow at the same time manages to teach tons of Torah, inspiring so many people, and working side by side with Rabbi Daniel Krauss, who is a dear, dear friend and colleague for six to seven years. Daniel and Rachel were our downtown uh, directors, and they brought literally thousands of new faces uh, into the Jewish community. And I'm always still meeting people who Daniel and Rachel have made an impact, who they brought closer to their Jewish heritage, and we feel such a debt of gratitude to each other. Rachel's been teaching Torah for well over a decade. 
funny. Australia and Belarus, throughout the United States. She's an incredible mom. Welcome here, here, one of the four beautiful kids. Um, and it's such an honor to be able to host both of you guys tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Rachel Press. Thank you so, so much, Emma Wilds. It's really um, a privilege beyond words uh, and such an honor for us to be able to be here tonight. Uh, number one, as we just heard, as Ray Wilds just mentioned, Daniel and I, our part of our origin story started with MGE first on the Upper West Side and then downtown. So for us, it's coming back to roots. And thank you so much for the years of mentorship and guidance. And it was a thrill of a lifetime and just extraordinary to be part of the creation, the formation, and the expansion of MGE downtown. Uh, so it's really just a tremendous privilege and honor for us to be back here. And as Ray Wilds just mentioned, there is a deep personal connection and love for Ruth Wilde. Growing up, Ruth was a celebrity name in our household. We loved Ruth. There were many times you remember going to Ruth's house. I actually pulled out a picture recently holding Raquel as like a six-month-old baby um, in Ruth and Leon's, at Ruth and Leon's home. And I uh, was talking with both my parents where they remember and recall a few interesting and funny anecdotes. My dad in particular, he dated my mom for seven years, not recommended, so dated for seven years. And at certain points over the course of those seven years, Ruth would pull my dad into the kitchen and say, it's time, you need to get married now. Eventually he did, uh, which was wonderful. And uh, there were a number of times also that over the course of their seven-year courtship and relationship, some sometime between third grade and high school, um, my mom would actually go on dates with my dad to the Wilds' home. And while my dad was tutoring, or my Wilds at the time was Mark, and, and Michael, my mom would be sitting in the kitchen with Ruth. And my mom recalls one particular story where, I mean, Ruth would gush and brag about her voice. There was nothing in the world more special and more special and more meaningful to her than her voice. And she said, there's just one problem, and it's the top door, uh, drawer desk in Mark's desk in his room. It's just a disaster. And it was like the one thing she said that needed, needed a little bit more love and a little bit more help. Um, but I, I remember fondly, and of course, hearing stories from my parents about uh, for Ruth Wilde, there, she lived and breathed for the three men in her life, for Leon, for Michael, and for Mark, and to do anything she could to champion their growth, to champion their development, and um, really defines the role of motherhood, the role of matriarch. And I know that I was the beneficiary of that intergenerationally, which will actually hardly into our discussion tonight. Um, but I remember so distinctly dancing at my bat mitzvah with Ruth, and actually our, our hands were interlaced it was a moment where she was healthy and where she had gotten a clean bill of health. And I remember dancing with her at this bat mitzvah, my bat mitzvah, looking into her eyes with just the most profound joy to celebrate and to be able to dance together with her. Roy Wilds was eating on the Chinese buffet that he talked about. Um, it was very good. It was a chop chop and tunic. It's right, it's right, exactly. Exactly. So very good food. Um, so for us to be able to be here tonight and behold Leon and Michael and Amy and Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Wilds and Jill and to all the other educators at, uh, at MJB and to everyone here, it is an honor to be able to memorialize, to commemorate and to celebrate Ruth Wilds, not only the matriarch of the Wilds family, but the matriarch of MGE. And what I wanted to do tonight, playing off of this intergenerational link 
and which we heard about that my father was connected to the, to the Wilds family, Rabbi Wilds connected to us, my brother learns with, uh, learns with one of the Wilds boys for his bar mitzvah, but there's a lot of interconnectivity, intergenerational companionship. And what I want to do is to go back in history to look at some of these pattern developments to be able to ascertain how these patterns not only played a role in our collective consciousness and in our role and formation of what it means to become a Jewish people, but to also understand how those were templates and blueprints for the future, and that everything we read about, everything we learn about, is in fact not only historic, but is also prophetic. And to be able to read through the text, to understand the interlinkage, not only of words, but also intergenerationally, to be able to understand to live and extract with a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose based on the patterns that are developed and the wisdom that lives buried within the text of our, of our Jewish lineage and history. So what I want to do is invite everybody, you should have a source sheet, and look at source number one momentarily. We find ourselves, as Ray Wilde mentioned, in this riveting drama towards the end of the book of Genesis, where we have Yosef meeting his brothers, who is in last week's Torah portion, and in this coming week's Torah portion, which is actually the final concluding um, chapters of the book of Genesis, the book of Bereshit, that we find that there are interesting sub-dynamics that play this role in the entire story of Genesis. And if you take a look at source number one, the Ramban Nachmanides, in his introduction to actually Sefer Shemot, which we're going to start in two weeks, please God. In his introduction to Sefer Shemot, it says as follows. According to the Ramban, there are names attributed to each of the five books. And there are many commentators that talk about the attribution and naming rights, so to speak, on each of the five books, because each one depicts a different quality, a different narrative, a different essence, a different meaning and purpose, a different character that is elicited from each of the books. So what is the name of the book of Bereshi? Sefer HaYitzirah, quite an appropriate name. It means the book of creation, except that the narrative of creation really only occupies the first chapter, second chapter of the entire book. So why is it that we attribute this narrative or this claim of Sefer HaYitzirah, the book of creation, to the entire book of Bereshit, when in fact it is only really just in the beginning that we talk about creation? And the Ramban suggests as follows. We need to read through the entire book of Bereshit, through all the narratives, all of the development, all of the relationships, all of the chaos, we need to read it from the perspective of it is a prototype, it is a template. Every single part that we read about in the book of Bereshit, the stories, the relationships, the drama, the chaos, all of it templatizes the future. It is not there simply to give us historical facts or pieces of information. It is there to help us understand the sub-dynamics of creation. What about creation? The creation of relationships, the creation of trust, the creation of meaning, the creation of purpose, the creation of identity, the creation of shared space, the creation of conflict. All of those sub-narratives are buried into these stories. So it's not enough just to read the story of creation, but to read things from a contextual perspective where, this, where the stories begin to come to life, not just historically, but projectively. And to be able to see the narratives not of the past, but narratives of the present and of the future. With this in mind, I want to revisit 
the story that we read in last week's Torah portion as an introduction to what we're going to read into this week's Torah portion to begin to see this identity of what Sefer HaYitzvah is all about and how we can possibly find these hidden traits and this hidden connective tissue that will lay the groundwork for what it truly means to be identified as a Jew. We know that in last week's Torah portion, there's this riveting drama where Judah, Yehuda gets up and it starts by Yigashi Lav Yehuda, and Yehuda approaches Joseph. What point of the story are we in? Joseph still has not revealed himself to his brothers, and Yehuda, at really a last wit attempt, approaches Yosef to try to be able to negotiate. What's at stake? His younger brother Benjamin is at stake. And the story goes as follows. We're in source number two. And we, he said to him, uh, Judah, Judah turns to Yosef and says, my, my lord, me, my master, we have an old father and a young child of his old age, referring to the young. His brother is dead, referring to Joseph. So Joseph, of course, is hearing the story, but Yehuda is telling the story, not knowing the audience through which he is uh, through which he's in front of. And he is left alone with his mother, and his father loves him. So the first thing that Yehuda tells us is that this was a favored child. He's acknowledging the notion of his favorite child. This becomes a very important fact and an important filter in reading through the rest of the narrative. And you told me to bring him down here. Joseph, we were following, he doesn't know Joseph, but Joseph came, master, viceroy of Egypt. We were following your rules. We were following your directive to bring this brother down. We did not want him to leave. We did not want him to leave my father's side and to risk what could possibly come of this loved, of this beloved son and this uh, this brother. But you, Viceroy, you challenged us and you said that this was a must. And if this didn't happen, you would no longer see our faces implying that there would be a destructive element to the story. There would not be a happy ending to the story of the brothers going down to Egypt to get food. And we told our father everything that had transpired. And he says, the father says, Yaakov turns his brothers and says, go buy us some food. I cannot go back to Egypt without my younger brother Benjamin. This becomes a discussion between the brothers and between Jacob that they must have the presence of their brother Benjamin before being able to return to Mitzrayim. And this monologue continues. Where Judah is standing in front of Joseph, pleading his case. And the father says, Yaakov says, we know that there were two children born, Joseph and Benjamin, and he says, but one brother disappeared. One brother was ripped to shreds. One brother disappeared and died and is no longer with us. And we'll skip to verse number 30 for a moment. And he turns to Joseph and he says, I haven't underlined this road coming back to this particular refrain and this particular verse. What does he say? He says that his soul, the soul of Benjamin, is bound up with the soul of Jacob. And the story continues. 
If this brother doesn't come back, this will be the end of my father. This will be the final, the final drill in the coffin. This is going to put him over the edge. This is going to kill my father. And the story, the narrative continues, jumping to verse number 34. How can I possibly go home to my father without having my brother Benjamin? I will not witness the misery of what this is going to cause my father. A riveting monologue where Judah approaches and he says, I can't do this. Take me instead. I can't, I cannot risk Benjamin. Right at this point in the narrative, the Pasuk continues. It's the following verse. I don't have it written here. And it says, And Yosef could no longer contain himself. He breaks down and he reveals his identity to his brothers. Now there's a question. It's actually quite the contrary. Yosef can control his tears because we've seen him do it before. A few chapters before, when he first sees his brothers, he's emotional. He's emotionally induced. And what does he do? He goes into a side room and he cries so that not to reveal himself to his brothers. So we know that he's a person that's able to hold back. We know that he's a person that has orchestrated this dramatic interpretation of the brothers and all of the charades and the chaos that ensues. We know that Yosef is able to hold back. Why are we told at this particular point that Yosef cannot hold himself back? What is this monologue? What is the baseboard of this monologue? This is the first time that Judah, that Yehuda is taking responsibility for his actions because historically, he was willing to let a child of Rachel die, Joseph. He was willing to risk his brother's life for his own ego, for his own power, for his own sense of identity. Nobody wants the dreamer brother. It kind of collapses his own dreams. It collapses his own future. It threatens his identity. He was willing to lose a child of Rachel before, but he's not willing to lose a child of Rachel now. This is the first time that Yehuda approaches, and what's changed? Nothing's changed. Benjamin is still the favorite child. Rachel is still the favorite wife. The parameters are very similar. Why is it that Yosef now breaks the loyal Because Yehuda, for the first time in his life, is able to see something beyond his own need. He's able to see brotherly love and be able to put his ego second, be able to put power second for the unadulterated love of a brother. Where historically he's willing to risk his brother's life. He is now willing to risk his life for his brother. And the anchor statement, Nashok Shurab and Nashok. He uses this phraseology to say their souls are intertwined, they're bound up with each other. Is he a favorite child? By the way, parenting 101, don't have a favorite child, don't talk about it. Right? So what he, they're intertwined. Yehuda knows this. He knows what it's like to be a brother of a favorite child, but it no longer bothers him. Because he's willing to see a greater good. He's willing to see camaraderie. He's willing to see brotherhood, even if it means putting his own ego second. Even if it means putting his own identity second. And this is the first time in history that Yehuda makes this reconciliation full circle and is able to face his brother, not as the one who threatens a child of Rachel, but the one that embraces a child of Rachel. So if we look at this idea in the context of the Ramban's introduction, this story is going to repeat itself in history. This is not the only time we're going to see a template of this type. This is not the only time we're going to see a story about Judah and a child of Rachel interact. We're going to jump to story number two. 
Take a look at source number three from the book of Samuel, the sacred Shmuel. This narrative is, is taken from the very famous story of David and Goliath, right? A very familiar story to all of us. And where David interacts with Goliath, he's actually accidentally on the battlefield, he's killed, and he takes Goliath down. And David McQuiffe. David is not the king yet at the time. This is a foreshadowing of the fact that he will be king. And what happens in this narrative? Take a look at source number three, verse number one. It says, el Shaul. And it came to pass that after David, after David interacts with Goliath, there's a victory, there's a battle, and he goes and he's sidebarring with Shaul. He has a conversation with Shaul. What happens at the end of that conversation? Yohonatan. And we see the words underlined that the soul of Yehonatan, who's Yehonatan? Yehonatan is the son of Shaul. So the son of Shaul is bound to the to this personality David. These words should be ringing in our ears because these words pull us back into the narrative of three sheep. We know these words because we've heard them before. Nashok Shirab and Nashok. We're a child of Rachel was bound. <clears throat> and what do we have here? Who is David? Who is the ancestor of David? Judah. Who's Yonatan? Who's his ancestor in the lineage of Shaul? It's Benjamin. Another child of Rachel and Yehuda have another interaction. Hundreds of years later, unrelated to the story of Yehuda and Yosef, unrelated to Judah and Joseph, we see that this narrative repeats itself again. And the text is begging us to participate. The Torah has an amazing way, whether it's Torah literature, whether it's uh, books of the prophets or the books of scriptures, to, and it's an incredible opportunity to spend time learning the words because the words themselves are calling for our participation. They're amplifying the space to beg us to join the conversation. There is so much that we can learn from the words, from the letters, from the spacing that invite us into a broader dialogue to understand and to unearth and unpack some of the extraordinary wisdom and hints that lie beneath the surface. So we read the story of Goliath and David, and all of a sudden we have a mixture of Nashob and Nashob. We have another institution of the intertwinings of soul. What is so profound? We take a look at the following verse. Shaul takes David on that day. David is not his son. Yonatan is his son, or Yonatan is sometimes referred to in the David. And he wouldn't let him go home. He's no longer, David is no longer going to go back to his home forever, but he's actually now going to move into the house of Shaul, to the house of the king, into the kingdom, and David is going to maintain permanent residence in that home now. Verse number three, So what do the two do? They embark on a covenant, on a, a bond of brotherhood. To always love each other, and to be wound up and bound up in each other's souls. So we'll pause there for a moment before we go to verse number four. If we set the stage, and this should sound oddly familiar, aside from the text begging us to see this in context for what we read in Rashi, aside from that fact, the other element that we see here is that Yonatan could easily feel threatened that this guy David is moving in on my space. Who's Yonatan? Seemingly heir to the throne. His father is the king. He should be king. And there's this guy, David, who's his friend, and all of a sudden has a permanent spot 
in his home, ultimately, foreshadowing, spoiler alert, Dovin becomes king. And there is not one ounce here of jealousy. There is not one ounce of feeling threatened. Yonatan could easily have seen Dovin moving in as a threat to his identity, as somebody who's trying to hijack his role in the kingdom, his role in his father's house. And not once, not only does he not see it, it's the other direction. Their souls become completely intertwined. Here's the extraordinary piece of this story, verse number four. And Yonatan takes off his coat and gives it to David. Isn't there another story in Jewish history about a brother taking a coat from another brother, right? Where Judah was willing to rip off a coat of his brother in order to facilitate his demise. And now, hundreds of years later, there's a child of Rachel willing to take off his coat for a child of Judah. So we see the pattern repeat itself throughout Jewish history. So we've got Judah and Joseph, where in his finest moment in last week's Torah portion, was not only not willing to risk the death of a brother, but now was willing to risk himself to save his brother. And we see that pattern seen throughout history for hundreds of years later. It's Yonatan, a child of Rachel, who takes off his coat to share in the love, the camaraderie, and the brotherhood for Doug. But the story doesn't end there. We've got a fourth, a third story. We'll jump to the fourth story too. We've got a third story here. This is taken from the book of Ruth. Why are we referencing the book of Ruth? So, fun fact. Who is King David's great-grandmother? Excellent. Awesome. That's why we're going to look, because maybe there's something, maybe there's another hint, maybe there's another quality, maybe there's something else to be excavated from the story of Ruth. Because it is, in fact, Ruth that is the progenitor of King David and the Davidic dynasty. And the first opening verse of the book of Ruth tells us an extraordinary sub-narrative. It gives us extraordinary context and an incredible level of depth and recognition that once you start to see the pattern, you can't unsee the pattern. Verse number one. So what's the first thing telling us? That this is taking place historically at the time of Judges, in the period of Judges, after the Jewish people had entered into the land of Israel under the leadership of Joshua, they had conquered the land and settled the land. The next era that was initiated was the era of the Shotim, the era of the Judges. And in, the, in that backdrop, or with that backdrop in mind, the story of Ruth takes place. So even though Ruth was canonized in the scriptures section, of Tanakh, of the 24 books of Tanakh, even though Ruth is, is there, um, was canonized in that section, in fact, chronologically, it happened at the same time as the book of Judges, was, which is um, canonized into the section of, uh, of the prophets. So it tells us, that it was in the period of the Judges, and there was a famine in the land. Also, here should be reading, when else was there a famine? Who else had to leave in order to get food for because it was a famine in the land? So again, the text is begging our participation. It's encouraging us to see things contextually and not out of historical context. What does it say? And a person, a man, went from Bethlehem of Judah to sojourn in the fields of Moab. So this is a person from the tribe of Yehuda. Now what's interesting is just in this first verse, what is this also telling us? What's Beit Lachem? Does that carry any historical significance in our identity? Who's buried in Beit Lachem? Rachel. 
So now, in these sub-dynamics of the story, it's not just a person who was from the tribe of Judah. It's Judah who is a resident of Rachel. He is a resident of the territory in which Rachel is buried. So we see that the two never leave each other. This story continues to perpetuate itself throughout Jewish history. To this day, Yehuda and Shomron in Israel, the Judean hills, the territory, encompasses Beit Lechem. It means that Rachel and Judah, or the children of Rachel and Judah, are forever linked. There's another fun fact, another sub-narrative. In the era initiating the Messianic times of redemption, there are two stages that are talked about. There's Mashiach ben Yosef, the Messiah from the lineage of Joseph, and there's Mashiach ben David, the Messiah from the lineage of David, going back to Yehuda. So the story that's stated in Sefer Breshit that we read in last week's Torah portion, of Judah standing in front of Joseph with this extraordinary, moving, sweeping monologue where he talks about his willingness to save a brother and not to risk a brother, that narrative leads to the Messianic era. It is prophetic. It is predicted. It is a template that allows us to develop a sense of pattern and be able to use those patterns to understand how to live and how to live with a sense of purpose and direction. So Yehuda and Yosef, we know that it repeats itself with uh, with Yonatan and with um, and with David, and now we're going to see that in the story of Ruth, in the story of Ruth, the matriarch of King David, ultimately the matriarch of the Messianic era of Mashiach ben David, of the Messianic era of the descendants of David from the tribe of Judah, that we see that even that story takes place with this interlinked, inextricable connection between the children of Rachel and with Judah. The story continues, the shame, the shame Ha'ish Elimelech, the shame Ha'ish Naomi, and we know that these are the two personalities, and Vayamat Elimelech, and Elimelech passes away, and uh, the two sons pass away as well. And if we part that narrative for a moment, and we're going to jump a little bit later, staying with the book of Ruth, we jump into the next portion. And in verse number, in uh, chapter number three, verse number 11, this is a discussion that happens between Boaz and Ruth. Who is Boaz? a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Obviously, we expect nothing less. And what does he say to her? He says, now, my daughter, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I will do everything for you. Because everybody knows, for you are a woman of thou. Now, these words should also say, there's a custom that these words are sung every Friday night in some homes. This is taken from the end of the book of Mishlei, the end of the book of Proverbs. Who was the author of the book of Mishlei? King Solomon. Who was King Solomon's father? King David. So we see this story continues to reimagine itself and to recalibrate itself. And there are two, their opinions of both the Akedah Yitzchak and the Ebenezer suggest that the narrative of Asha Kyle, this beautiful, moving prayer that is sung to celebrate women, to celebrate matriarchs, to celebrate femininity, that was actually written by Shlomo HaMelech as an ode to his great-great-grandmother, Ruth. And where do we know this from? From this particular verse. Because it uses the words Eshet Kaya in describing Ruth, that there's an extrapolation. There's an Eshet Kaya here. There's an Eshet Kaya there. It's written by King Shlomo. King Shlomo is obviously connected deeply connected to this story, to this genealogy, and it is, in fact, an ode to Ruth. And what I want to do is not just look at these intergenerational patterns and not just 
hinge ourselves back to the identity of the Ramban. Everything that we read about in the book of Bereshit seeds, habits, and templatizes a way for us to be able to interact and engage with our Jewish identity. We know that throughout Bereshit, it is wrought with stories of strife, stories of crisis, stories of resilience, stories of resolution, of, of repentance, of coming back to self, parent-child relationships, sibling relationships. And we should never look at it just as historical matter, but they are predictive matter. These are patterns that will continue to repeat themselves. And if we take that outside of the macro context of Jewish history, we jump now to source number six. And we take a look at the words of ancient Isaac for a moment. Take it from the 31st chapter of Mishnah. So again, as we mentioned before, Aisha Kyle is a pull quote from the story of Ruth. Because we know that Boaz calls Ruth, he attributes this quality and this characteristic to Ruth. And now, this story, those words reappear and reimagine themselves in the book of Mishnah. And it says as follows, Aisha Kyle A woman of valor, who can I find? For her price is beyond pearls. And as this beautiful acrostic continues, says as follows, her children rise and call her fortunate, also her husband, and praises her. And I want to zoom out and suggest for a moment that, yes, we are talking about the matriarch Ruth, the matriarch Ruth, the progenitor of the Davidic dynasty. We're talking about the matriarch Ruth, who lived in the territory of Bethlehem because we see an inextricable link between Judah and the children of Rachel, a link of brotherhood a link of camaraderie, a link of friendship, where one is willing to sacrifice for the other because that is what the vows of love are all about. And we see that that story plays out not just in the matriarch Ruth, the macro-historic matriarch of the Davidic dynasty, but we see that with our matriarch of Ruth Wyatt. And what does it say? Her children rise and call her fortune. Uh, and her husband praises her. And we have, thank God, biological children, biological grandchildren, and now biological great-grandchildren who continue to sing the praises of Ruth. But we are all also the children of Ruth. Not just the matriarch Ruth of the Davidic dynasty, but the matriarch of the Wilds family of Ruth Wilds. Because it is in her sechut, it is in her merit that we are here, that we're able to interact with each other, that we're able to learn together, we're able to learn from one another, we're willing to understand and to dare ourselves to participate in the experience of Jewish identity. We're willing to go and to delve into text, to give up time, possibly being someplace else, to be here, to come on Shabbat, to come on retreat, to spend time with one another. Why? Because the bond of brotherhood cannot be broken. Because a child of Judah is willing to risk himself for a child of Rachel. And in the future, a child of Rachel is willing to say, take my coat. I don't feel threatened by you. I love you, but I want to embrace you. And we see the story of brotherhood reimagine and reappear itself and manifest itself throughout Jewish history. And this becomes the hidden trait of Jewish identity. It is to understand what it means to be there for one another. The virtues and the values of chesed, to understand, to understand what it means to empathize, to feel somebody else's pain, to feel somebody else's experience, to say, are you okay? To ask somebody else's name, to invite them into your home. We know that this was a hallmark of the wild home. To have people come over, my parents also talked about there were always matching plates and napkins. It was always so sophisticated, beautifully laid out. 
It is her children who raise their voices to praise her, and it is us, the beneficiaries of Ruth Wild's legacy and her teaching, that it's our voices that can raise and sing her praises, and of course, beloved husband, to be able to sing her praises. And we end up, it is Ruth who embodied this understanding of this intergenerational pattern to understand that the templates of what we read about in Torah, and Rabbi Wild spoke before about this, the power of the center of gravity, that Judaism, that spirituality, that tefillah, that prayer served for her as a North Star for how to operate and how to engage. It is that value, it is that energy, it is that purpose, it is that sense of identity that brings the bonds of community together. And it is in her merit that we are all here. The 25,000 meals that have been served are in the merit of our matriarch, Ruth Wild, the At Alita Kulana. It is her that stands above all others, and we are continuously the beneficiaries of her extraordinary generosity, of her wisdom, and of her love. Thank you so much. I want to thank Rachel for that incredible presentation. Um, any questions? <laughs> Anybody have any comments or questions? Um, I really, Rachel will be around, we can ask her privately. But I just want to just give you huge, huge issue of just an incredible, incredible talk. It was so beautiful. Um, my brother's going to say a quick word, but I also just wanted to thank um, Connie, who I didn't mention before. Connie Perlman, I wanted to thank her for all of her wonderful help, and Dr. Adina Berkowitz, and Zahava Schwartz also has just been so, so helpful to us, and such a big part of our community. Thank you guys for huge, huge help, and I also want to recognize the presence of another dear friend of my mother, Blessed Mary, Evelyn Rockman, who is here. Thank you so much for coming, Evelyn. Thank you a lot to us. Shakov, Rachel. It's hard to imagine uh, that this is actually the 26th event that we did to memorialize on Mount. Last year, we were relegated, I think, to the world of uh, Zoom with uh, Senator Lieberman. And we've had some real scholars here, Rabbi Sachs, Yukonu Rucha, Dr. Lamb, Yukonu Rucha, some jurists, and some real talent. Uh, but today, hit home. Hit home because... We coined our mother like nobody else did. Hard for me, despite the passage of time, not to see the benefit of the lessons of what you brought up. The intergenerational effect of one woman, memorialized by my daughter, Lauren Ruth, and by my son, who now named her, yet in another generation, Abigail. Mark named his daughter also after my mother. Each of us did it instinctively. I didn't have a conversation with my son. He wanted to name his daughter after me. So what is the appeal 26 years later, a pandemic and all the challenges that families and life brings you? I had a little bit of an epiphany today. Fox News asked me this morning at 5.30 to show up to Ellis Island because they wanted to do documentary on immigration. My father raised me, 
as a proper immigration lawyer would, to say yes and figure out what I'm going to say when I got there. <laughs> when I showed up, I had to go across a bridge in the middle of the night as Lady Liberty stood proudly a few nautical miles from here as the sun was coming up. And I stood in a great hall with two American flags, stone floor, and I saw my grandfathers walking across. One grandfather had a J on his passport and a swastika. And if you took off the J, the Jew in red, the name Israel was there, and for every woman, the name Sarah. My mom had a passport that said Sarah Ruth Babette Shumlu, just in case the J came off. My other grandfather, Harry, my dad's father, came with a walking stick and a hat. He looked like a million dollars, his sisters would say. He didn't have a dollar to his name, but he looked like a million dollars. And he strolled into the same chamber. Both of them came to this world. And if you look at the love letters between my grandparents when they were courting each other, and the scribe that my Zadie Harry was when he wrote the minutes for his shul in Pennsylvania, you can see coming off of those words what you described tonight. Sense of character, sense of resilience and identity to amplify from one generation to the next what's important. I feel my mother every day. I saw her this morning, and I felt her tonight. I'm sorry that I can't keep it together, but there's a lot going on in the world, and I think it's important for all of us to kind of have a moment to connect and understand that our children are watching what we do, not what we say. For those of you who haven't had the benefit yet of having children get on with it, <laughs> and for those of you that have challenges, dig into these parshas because it is a template and it does set a stage not just for the life that we have, but for the legacy of the league. I can't think of any place that speaks to that more than my brother. So, mom lost one of her dear friends, Bobby Smith, this last year, but her two oldest friends still come year after year. And I think it's important oh, for us. Pardon? Long time. Long time, not all. <laughs> I think it's incumbent upon us to realize that mom's dishes matched, that they were the same quality, and they still are being used to this day. Her furniture, the alarm guy is still my alarm guy. The quality and the content of character can last a lifetime and beyond if it's done right. The formula is the Torah, and the maestro is my dear brother. I ask everybody to contribute to this organization with your presence, ENTS or ENCE, whichever you need. But please be a part of this beautiful organization. Thank you. Um, thanks, thank you all for coming. I uh, really want to just say to my brother and Rachel, um, just a huge, huge shakaf is a big, big support and merit for all of us. I just want to we were missed if I didn't plug the ski retreat, which is the first weekend, which is the first weekend in February. And we are going to Israel this year. We're going to have to storm at Berlin Airport. We're going to Israel. So please sign up. It's going to be an amazing, amazing trip. And uh, I thank you all for coming. And uh, Rabbi Ezra's giving me the look because it's going to rain. And it, it's not. So you go up to the roof and eat. And, and you don't have to wear these masks on the roof. And just enjoy yourselves. Thank you all for being here tonight. 
to all the fellows. We'll see you next week. We'll see you at Shabbat. Friday night, SNL, 6.30, Shabbat services in the morning, 9.30. Chicago. talk about Thank you for all the We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.